Welcome to Supply Chain Next with your host, Richard Donaldson. Join us as we explore the ongoing evolution of supply chain, from the challenges professionals face every day to the ongoing digital transformation of the entire value network. And good morning and welcome to another episode of Supply Chain Next. And I'm thrilled this morning here on Tuesday to have Mr. Scott Downs on. Uh, good morning, Scott. How are you doing? Morning. Doing great. How about good. you? Good. Uh, doing doing, doing good so far. I think we're better off than some of the folks uh, battling hurricanes and weathering you know, there in I'm Florida. Good. So <laughs> I'll take my desert dryness in Arizona here. Right. Yeah, and we, you're, have, we have some you people at? in the crosshairs for that storm, too. We'll yeah. Where are you at, Scott? I'm in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, and uh, yeah, and Invisible is uh, proudly remote and global from the start. So we're uh, we're everywhere. Oh, cool. Okay. Well, that's a, that's a good story there. Well, listen, let's let's jump right into it, Scott. And and you know, kind of like we do, you know, thrilled to have you on here. But let's start a little bit about you. You know, who's who's Scott Downs? Who's a little bit of your origin story? You know, how do you know? Walk us through a little bit of that path that it looks like sort of in the southeast there sort of in atlanta tennessee developer kind of thing going on and you know how i got to where you are today yeah I, I actually always start uh candidate interviews when i'm interviewing someone for a job by asking them what their uh marvel superhero origin story oh, is we're on the same page then already <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I feel like uh there's always something to to kind of dig at to find what people's core motivations are. Yeah. Um, so I have my own my own kind of uh, radioactive spider uh, for, for for myself right that led my career um, in the direction. And all these are psychological clues that tell us a little bit about which character you choose. You got the radioactive spider versus right. some gamma ray thing, or <laughs> so right. we got and a Spider Man psychology going on here. So <laughs> I, I don't know that I personally identify with that, but I think that um, that yeah, you absolutely will see what people value. Uh, when you when you look at the narrative behind uh, how they ended up where they are, yeah. so um, I, mean, I grew up in Alabama. I grew up in Montgomery, Alabama, um, and uh, was uh, a little bit different than the rest of my family. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, you know my family was full of uh, football players and cheerleaders, um, and I was a kid who skipped grades. Roll Tide, roll. Yeah, I'm a, I'm an <laughs> Alabama fan. My my family is all Auburn fans. Just for the, <laughs> for the record. Right. But, uh, but yeah, so I, I grew up in an environment where I was a little bit different and I was kind of looking for a community and connections to, uh, to, to other folks who, where I would feel more like myself, like I felt like I belonged. So, uh, that kind of a sense of community is always something that I valued. And, uh, from, from an early age, I was a math and science nerd. I was actually, I did a, a little tour as the uh, kind of backup substitute calculus teacher at my high school when I was 14. Oh, wow. Jeez. So, so like super nerd. Uh, yeah. And somewhere along the line, um, I decided that I, I really wanted to have more um, balance mm -hmm. um, in my interests and in my life. So I went off to college and studied literature. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, of I, course, that totally makes sense, right? We're going right from math and heavy science into yeah. literature. Why aren't you a sci-fi writer? Well, maybe I am, um, <laughs> but I, I think um, for me that that uh, that kind of move kind of uh, it foreshadows a lot of things that happen in my life in terms of of always wanting to explore the other side, see both sides, explore other areas of interest. So, um, so yeah, I went to college, studied literature, um, was mostly focused on music, tried to make a living as a musician. Um, still, am a musician. Still, am a singer songwriter. Um, but yeah, I just, I've always had this kind of, uh, curiosity and, and unwillingness to be pinned down to one particular area or be in one box. Mm -hmm. So for me, the story was that for, um, some number of years, five plus years out of college, I was still kind of strobing through different career possibilities and trying to find ways to meet, uh, kind of my imperatives, which were to have a sense of, um, creativity and contributing to the universe in a way that was meaningful for myself. I didn't want just a J-O-B job. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and then the dot-com era happened. And there were a lot of folks like me who had um, some knowledge of, of programming. I've been programming since I was a, a young kid. Um, and also um, had er other areas of interest. So it turns out that in the early uh, kind of internet boom, um, being able to write code mm -hmm. 
and having worked in print design and being able to write and knowing a little bit about managing servers. You kind of put all those pieces together and all of a sudden you're, you're a hot commodity. Mm -hmm. um, so that was, that was the first moment where I felt like I had found my people. Okay. Um, other people who cared about, um, cared about computing, compared about net, uh, cared about networks, mm -hmm. cared about uh, uh, language, communications. It all kind of came together for me. So that, that was, that's the start of many things. Well, let me, let me, let me double click on a couple of things because I think there's an interesting um, point of view here. So I, if I'm looking at the dates here, I'm kind of putting you and I at about the same age, roughly graduated you know, high school somewhere in the late 80s, right? Mid to late 80s, kind of college, early, early 90s, right? And you started in, if I've got this right here, around 96, 97 in sort of the development kind of thing, but in the Atlanta area, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Okay. So with that though, let me ask it because I, I just as a contrast started myself about 97 in Silicon Valley in San Francisco. Right. And I kind of fell into investment banking versus development, but similar to you started playing at the early days of connecting computers when we were moving from six, 56 K modems to DSL. And at that point in time, learning how to connect computers together in a little small business office network meant you understood how to build the entire internet because <laughs> the protocols are the same, right? right? You learn the fundamentals, right? And they kind of stick with you. But my question is, you were in a different part of the country. You were in the Southeast, which, you know, Silicon Valley kind of dominated at that time. So what was it like to be in what is now a, an emerging technology hub? kind of being a technologist, finding people, you know, in this coalition in the Southeast, which was, I'm assuming rare. And I'm contrasting to myself in Silicon Valley at the time, that was the norm, right? Like everyone was a geek. Everyone was a nerd. We were all talking development and technology. Like it was, you, you know, in, in, in San Francisco, you could walk down the street and run into anybody and talk about how to hook up computers and what 56K modems were. And they knew what they were talking about. I'm imagining in the Southeast, it was a little bit different in that time frame. Like what was it like to be there in that you know, now looking back on that, what was it like to be there? Because they're very formative. And now Atlanta and the Southeast is becoming a technology hub. You're in Tennessee, that's becoming a technology hub. But it wasn't at the time. That's right. Um, yeah, I think uh, I, I think it all comes back to those kind of core values and, and interests. I, I definitely felt like we were on the outside looking in. Um, okay. So my first experience with a software startup, we sold um, networking software for mm -hmm. Windows PCs to, uh, to work on Apple networks. Wow. Um, and um, so our, I got into that job. It's, it's exactly as you said. Um, I worked for a small publishing company. Mm -hmm. And at the time, desktop publishing, um, you know, there was a bit of a promise of like, oh, it's just sort of plug and play. Just go buy a Macintosh right, and run Quark Express and you can make a book. Right, right. <laughs> and, and you literally could. Yeah. But you start to get into the, like, it's a microcosm of the growth of the entire tech industry. Like, oh, well, what happens when we want to talk to other computers? Um, so I, I did the same thing, I think, that you did, which was mm -hmm. um, I started, you know, setting up. I, I built the first network for a small company, right. and all of a sudden, I'm a networking expert. Yeah, right. Um, and um, and that led me to join a small uh networking software company, right? So mm -hmm. that's how I ended up with that company that did the Windows software for Apple Talk Networks. Mm -hmm. And um, and I was really excited about the whole experience of um, being able to make an impact on the world as literally measured by uh, boxes sold in CompUSA. Like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We, we, I wrote the manual. CompUSA. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Right, um, right. Like uh, shiny, shiny discs um, in boxes that were largely empty, mm -hmm. <laughs> but, but I could go into a store and I could see my company's software on the shelf. Mm -hmm. And that was really powerful to me, but that wasn't nearly as powerful as the first time we went to Macworld Expo. Mm -hmm. um, and that's when I, I looked around and I happened to be there the year that um, uh, Steve Jobs was still an advisor. Mm -hmm. He had come back, but you could see he was kind of like... Right weaseling his way in which is a good thing yeah. Gil and Leo is still the CEO but yeah that was that was actually the first very formative experience for me at the age of like I guess I was 24 mm -hmm. and all of a sudden I was surrounded by this community that maybe like information distribution was different than like I was aware of Silicon Valley through Wired magazine 
right? Mm-hmm. It wasn't, it wasn't um, the, the cultural influence hadn't spread quite as right. far. Right. But, but when you're in it, when you're at, on the floor at Macworld Expo with the buzz around Steve Jobs' return to Apple, all of a sudden I'm like, okay, oh, okay, yeah. this is it. This is the thing I'm going to do now. This yeah. is, these are my people. We speak the same language. We have the same interests. And uh, you know, I actually didn't mind uh, having a little bit of an underdog mentality of being this little software startup in Atlanta trying to create uh, something. Uh, mm-hmm. Which is great to to get connected to the, you know, the nexus. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Well, but now, but building on that as you kind of walk through, you know, you could have gone a lot of different directions starting when you started, right? You clearly kind of touched a little bit of development, a little bit of networking. I mean, hell, you could have gotten into infrastructure, data center design, which I'm sure you touched at some point. I mean, there's there's sort of these foundational elements that grew into what is the internet infrastructure utilities that we see today. But you kind of looks like stuck with a little bit of the creative designing process. I mean, walk through a little bit how you got to where you are today, right? Because obviously you're the CTO of Invisible Technologies. We'll get to that. But at, at the end of the day, like looking back on that now, if you were kind of helping people in, you know, coming out of school today, you know, undergraduate or graduate, like maybe there was a plan, maybe there wasn't, but it sounds like you kind of fell into a few things. But looking back on that now, how do you reflect on how you kind of progressed? to get to where you are now? What did you kind of choose and what was good and bad about it? Well, I would say that um, there used to be a job called webmaster. Right. <laughs> and, and I was kind of born to be a webmaster, somebody who, who cares about, um, about server operating systems, <laughs> somebody right. who cares about networks, but also who cares about design and also who cares about communication and also who cares about... Uh, other kind of presentation considerations, UX. Um, I was just going to say you were doing UX before UX was even a term, potentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. And and I and I, I found that during that, like my progression, I was very happy that the world had kind of had fully emerged that uh, allowed me to to touch all these different areas, which allowed mm-hmm. me to it, it, um, my. Uh, my Marvel character may actually not be a hero. It may be a villain. It may be Doc <laughs> Ock. <laughs> I, I, I'm kind of like a conceptual octopus. I like sure. having tentacles in all these different areas. Yep. And what, what happened over the next kind of 10 years of my career is that I found that the professionalization mm-hmm. of web development and web application development and application servers led to this kind of uh, specialization, balkanization of function. Yep. So if you were... Uh, there was a time when I would be the guy who might, I might install Oracle on a Solaris box, and I also might do a, a design that I share with a client. Mm-hmm. Now the same people don't tend to do those things. Right, right. And what I found was that as my career was progressing, there was more and more pro- kind of pressure, external pressure to pick something. Like okay. if you're a designer who writes code, people assume you're a bad programmer. Right. Programmer who, who designs, they assume you're a bad designer. Mm-hmm. So I literally had people in my job say, oh, they knew my design work. So they were like, well, you know, you, I don't think that this you're up for this particular challenge. This is Java. This is an object-oriented programming language. I'm like, mm-hmm. my friend, yeah, right. <laughs> I've been writing code since I was 12. Yeah, right. This is not new to me. Um, so I guess the progression of my career was that I kind of was riding the uh, the same trend that everyone else in the industry was, which was, okay, pick a lane. What do you do? What do you do well? Um, and after doing that for a while and working in consulting roles, I, I came back to startups because I wanted to be able to use all all eight arms. Right. Um, and there's something fundamental about the startup environment that um, that rewards the the kind of mini hats uh, yeah. thing. And uh, and I I'm I'm not willing to set aside my hats even now. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just not. It, well, just, let me, let me again double click on that because there's a segmentation where you kind of, you're, 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 you're going down the, the middle of the path and product, I'm going to call it product development, product engineering. And you clearly tack in the direction of product engineering versus maybe hardcore technology, right? And there is a differentiation between product engineering and you kind of touched on it, but I want to get into it a little bit versus product management, which is more the business, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to refrain from putting my, my words into this one, but from your perspective, what is it about looking back now? Because product engineering led to CTO. And again, think of the context of people listening who are kind of you know, wondering, 
how, how, what is product engineering? How did you fall into that? Because it also wasn't necessarily a term that was popularized probably till I'm guessing, I got to remember this, probably the mid 2000s, later 2000s, when we started segmenting, you know, defining the different roles and definitions, like you were talking about UX before it's UX. You were also talking about product engineering before it's product engineering and kind of fell into that. That's right. I think um, my, uh, my first product engineering title, and I was insistent on it at the time, <laughs> I get words are powerful. So it, yeah. it meant a lot to me to, to make sure that it was clear in my role in a particular company at a particular point in time, which was, I think, 2006 or seven. Right. Um, that uh, I think you can hear a, a through line in the narrative here that I wanted to make sure that I could be um, uh, have holistic control over the over the, the the work that I was trying to create. You want control mm -hmm. over the content and timing of your work, mm -hmm. and I felt that product management as a discipline was starting to encroach on some areas of engineering where I felt I was expressing myself most fully. Right? Mm -hmm. so I didn't want to have uh, product roles come in and peel away control over the content and timing of the work that I was performing. Now, mm -hmm. some engineers find that a comfort. Mm -hmm. Some engineers find it, find that to be like uh, a way to create certainty and to drill in on problems that truly matter to them. Mm -hmm. But for me, being the holistic guy with all the different octopus arms, mm -hmm. I didn't want any any arms removed. Mm -hmm. So for me, um, the 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 story has always been. Uh, let's create something beautiful and useful right. that makes an impact in the world. Right. And uh, for me, I just wasn't willing to kind of sacrifice um, that kind of autonomy, um, mm -hmm. like by by totally uh, just kind of casting off any responsibilities for for the content of the work that I was producing. Mm -hmm. And I mean, like the business impact and understanding um, how it. This is kind of an abstract conversation, but the the company at the time. Um, that I was working with um, was uh, a startup that had a lot of potential in the mobile marketing space, mm -hmm. but we were in the phase of, of growth where um, the CTO at that time told me, um, he's like, hey, Scott, like if, if we try 20 things and 19 fail, that's okay if one succeeds. Mm -hmm. um, so we were kind of churning through different um, different business models and approaches, and trying to trying to figure out where we attach to the market. And mm -hmm. I didn't want to be out of that game. I didn't want to just be the guy who was trying to build one of the nineteen things that ends up getting put put in the back closet. Right. So you know that's that's kind of the context that makes it uh, meaningful to me. Gotcha. I want to be in the game. Gotcha. Well, and, and, and I'm going to bring it forward here a little bit, but and I'm going to just get a little. But in your mind, how do you differentiate, this is sort of an open question, between product engineering and product management? How do, how do you set the stage for that sort of symbiotic relationship? Um, I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, answer. I've That's built, fine. That's fair. I've, I've, built, I've built and run product organizations in different companies, and the world moves at such a pace right. that... Um, I don't think it's kind of like the, uh, let's Heraclitus, you, you can't step in the same river twice. Right. Um, every time you come back to the question of how to meaningfully construct a product organization or a tech org or a marketing team or a design team, it's highly contingent on the environment and the moment we're in in history. So Fair. I would say that um, in 2006, uh, just as an example, when I talked about um, agile methodologies or Scrum, mm -hmm. Or, or something, something along those lines. If, if we start talking about software development methodologies, right. um, those weren't generally relevant to the world. Right. Um, it was something that nerds talked about. Yeah. And now, um, like civilians, like yeah. normal companies um, and non-tech orgs talk about how they had a stand-up or how mm -hmm. they want to be agile. Mm -hmm. um, and what I find is that some of the questions that you're describing, like, the interesting question to me, actually, as it relates to product, is what is the role of product in a company who's uh, who's not delivered delivering a pure digital bits and bytes product? Mm -hmm. If you're if you're delivering Microsoft Word, I think the the role of product management is pretty clear. Mm -hmm. But if you're providing a complex service that's backed by a tech platform, um, or you're doing consumer tech, the role of the product manager is much much more inter interdisciplinary. Mm -hmm. um, and kind of hellaciously complicated, yeah. um, but it's also where the game is at. It's, it's yeah. where the it's where the action is. Well, and and I think that's 
I mean, I appreciate the candor as well, too. And I think you're absolutely correct. It is a moving target with a lot of these definitions because, you know, even the role of CTO, which you are now, has changed dramatically in the last 20 years, right, on what that means. And it's still, I don't want to say ambiguous, but kind of to your point, it depends on the company, depends on what's going on at that company, and it depends on the timing as to what that CTO is doing. Right. Absolutely. And probably the CTO themselves. Right? Like, what, what do they want to do and how do they want to do it and how do they fit into the management team, how they define the team structure. Right. Um, so, so, so again, let me swing back. So, so how, kind of, again, walking through, I was kind of walking through the basics of what got you to where you are, but you also have an interesting pathway to kind of lead you to invisible tech, right. Which is kind of, you know, there's development in there. Like you said, you touched a lot of things. You got the eight tentacles out there touching all sorts of parts of web development, mobile development. But then you get into sort of a process platform. Like walk through how, how you ended up where you are now with Invisible because it's not exactly, it's not the most clearest path. There's a general, I think, theme, but, you know, go ahead in your words. Sure. I mean, I, I actually... Um... I don't, I don't think it's that exotic in that I worked for in an enterprise SaaS environment for a decade. Um, and that was pretty kind of bog standard. Uh, there was a period of time that we'll, <laughs> we'll tell our kids, there used to be a time when there were lots of software companies um, and they built software products and right. you had to know about them. Um, there, during that period of time, there was just like a massive consolidation so many of the companies that were our clients and so much of the product that we built ended up in Salesforce universe. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, I think um, my story is that I worked in, uh, I wanted to work for software companies. I wanted to mm-hmm. build software for real people that okay. they used. And after a while, it turns out that like um, uh, services and consumer tech uh, became much more relevant. Um, so where is where are interesting things happening? Um, is there interesting tech being built at Microsoft still? S- certainly, but um, the rise of of the marketplace companies, companies like Uber, um, really kind of paved a path for how technology could transform um, non software industries. How technology and- infused the work of uh, of of every modern company. Uh, but they kind of were were paving a path. So for me, I went from working for an enterprise SaaS company to working in a, in consumer tech for a company that was sort of like the Uber of residential moving, mm-hmm. um, an on-demand moving service for residential moving called Bellhop. Mm-hmm. It's called Bellhops at the time. Um, they took the S away, but um, but yeah, at Bellhop, the the priority was to transform uh, a real world experience, the real world experience of the stress. Of a move day, mm-hmm. and how do we how do we address the problems that are inherent in um, in in the com- the complexities and and stresses and pain of residential moving? A lot of the issues there relate to um, relate to problems that can be solved by uh, uh, well by a combination of uh, interesting business model, interesting technology. Um, and uh, and logistical excellence. Mm-hmm. So, um, one of the problems that's core to uh, to I hate to use the word supply to refer to people, but I'm going to. So, just like forgive me in advance for saying it. Right. But like um, a lot of the the difference between um, uh, your experience of a bellhop or a lift, as examples, has to do with um, these being really intimate personal experiences with moving as an example, you're bringing people into your home, right? Um, you've got your kids walking around, you've got strangers whom you've never met, um, interacting with you on your most, in your most vulnerable moment, Mm -hmm. um, on the most stressful day of your year, um, maybe of your decade. Um, and how do we, how do we solve, how do we make that better with technology? Mm -hmm. Well, that's just a fascinating question. Um, and one of the ways that we do it is that we make sure that we have the right people in place. Mm-hmm. And it's a significant challenge to be able to scale up a workforce, moving is very seasonal, scale up a workforce with thousands or tens of thousands of workers who meet a certain standard, mm-hmm. who embody the values of your company, mm-hmm. who represent you appropriately, mm-hmm. but then rotate off right. in, 
in a few months. Right. Um, and you can't do that um, just with hustle. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'll just give, uh, if it's okay, I'll give an example yeah. of something I think it's like, just the, just the, my favorite example of how, um, how we execute digital transformation in the context of something like a consumer tech company like Bellhops. Um, there was a period of time where, uh, where we, uh, we matched our workforce with moves. And our workforce, by the way, was entirely college students, which was a brilliant innovation by the founders to say, mm. you know what? It turns out that supply um, and demand line up in a really interesting way when you think about this. Moves are typically executed in the summer and on weekends. Right. And guess who's available in the summer and weekends? College students. Sure. And uh, and guess what? You know, if they can lift 70 pounds over their head, um, we can give them beer and pizza money. And we right. can train them well enough to do what we need them to do to deliver an excellent experience. Mm-hmm. And as opposed to uh, some of the incumbents in that space, we were able to bring in kind of these fresh-faced young kids who had a, a future CEOs, lawyers, doctors, um, and uh, and they were just really earnest and enthusiastic about their work. But that's not enough, right? right. So that's a great formula uh, to start the thing. That's a great kind of an alchemical mixture. Mm-hmm. Um, but then in terms of executing that at massive scale across dozens or hundreds of markets, how do we assign the right people? How do we hire the right people? How do we train them? And how do we assign them to the right task? And I'm just going to pick one piece, which is assignment. Mm-hmm. There was a period of time where we took, um, we kind of took every move. If there was demand, we would we would accept it. And we would figure out who would go on the move mm-hmm. uh, using a combination of a job board. Mm-hmm. So, okay, there's a little bit of tech. But also we would hustle to find movers for specific jobs. Mm-hmm. And the, the percentage of jobs we had to fill through hustle, we called it a Tyson rate. And the concept of a Tyson rate came from the idea that there was a, there was a poster on the wall of Mike Tyson. Oh. Right? <laughs> and uh, ultimate startup hustle culture concept, like right. um, it's, it's 8 p.m., there's a move in the morning, we need to find some guys who can do a move. Hey, I know a guy at University of Georgia who's on the lacrosse team who might have some buddies, we might be able to recruit him onto the platform, let's call him up. So there was all this hustle mm-hmm. in the operations group to create uh, the outcomes that we desired, but there was no tech enabling that. Right. So we literally measured this concept of a Tyson rate. So the guys would get on calls, find somebody to, to do the move, and then go like, yeah. punch punch Mike. Yeah. Um, we Tyson another one. And it's such an interesting moment for companies that are going through that kind of a transformation to think like the values of that company and our understanding of quality work were driven by the idea that like we had maybe a somewhat insurmountable problem, a ton of kind of chutzpah and, and energy and enthusiasm. And the way that you solve a problem is through hustle. Well, what we did was we ended up uh, building a system to perform uh, automated assignment based on Mm -hmm. criteria and previous performance. So we wanted Mm -hmm. to make sure that the people who'd done well in previous jobs got future jobs. Mm -hmm. And the people who hadn't done well didn't get any more. So uh, kind of a self-maintaining ecosystem. And we drove the Tyson rate to 0%. And what's fascinating about that to me is not just the technology, because the technology is fairly trivial. And in fact, the technology could drive you right off the cliff. Sure. You, you could absolutely build a Tysoning replacement that put bad people on the job and undermine the entire confidence of people in the brand. Mm-hmm. But that, that to me is like just the most exquisite and fascinating example of how you transform a business in the modern era using technology in a domain where you wouldn't necessarily think of this as a problem solved by like uh, a, a web developer, say. Sure, sure. But well, well, again, just because there's so much, there's a lot to unpack in that, and and I want it because there's also a se- beautiful segue into what you're doing now because you kind of reference some some processes and some people. But before we get to that, you did something and you flew over it pretty quick. First of all, you defi- you you created a KPI, right? You created a way to measure, right? Something. And what I want to kind of double click on and 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 kind of shine the light on is. There wasn't a KPI known to you all 
and all of a sudden became the Tyson rate, right? Mm -hmm. Yet, looking back on that, you did pick something that then allowed you to not only measure it, but then show the improvements or or negative effects, right? Because you've created a measurement now. And as you said, you were able to drive to zero. So what I want you to unpack a little bit is, number one, looking back on that, did you, you know, now looking at that measurement, like, did you know at the time what you were defining and that it was going to have this kind of outcome? Because it seems like it's, you kind of figured this out after the fact. But these are the lessons people read in books. And sometimes until they live them, they don't realize how powerfully impactful measurement is, yet defining what to measure up front, boy, that's, that can lead you in great directions or really poor directions. If I'm focused on measuring something that really is adding no value, then, then the whole KPI discussion kind of goes into, you know, off the cliff. But somehow you're able to latch on something that actually helped the business dramatically. Did you adjust that measure? So I'm kind of I'm kind of getting into the whole concept around how did you create that measurement? How did you even think of that at the beginning? And then, you know, now looking back on that, did you adjust it as you went through to tune it to make the business more successful? Yeah. So um, it wasn't my measure initially. I I kind of co-opted it, okay. and it wasn't considered a negative metric. Okay. So, so for, from my perspective, I saw that there was a metric we were tracking that to me, uh, my intuition suggested that this was an opportunity for technology to, to disrupt the existing model. Gotcha. And my understanding of my function as a CTO in that company or as a technologist in general in the world is to find opportunities to be sort of like a a missionary or evangelist for the power of technology and solving problems. Mm -hmm. And so often uh, people come to business problems with entrenched values or history. Um, and we're, my whole job is to be, to be a disruptor or to create like meaningful incremental change. Maybe it's not revolutionary, maybe it's evolutionary, mm -hmm. but um, it, it seemed to me to be clear in that environment. And it often seems to be the case that um when we think about the way that technology um, is implemented to create success in a company, there will be barriers of uh, inertia, skepticism, um, just plain old, this isn't how we used to do things, moving the right. cheese. Right. So I understand my job as a technology leader is to tell stories and to create a, a narrative for success and to create a, a room, a home for technology to solve problems. Mm -hmm. So it, it was in no way like um, a surprise to me. <laughs> that, like right. when, when I latched onto that metric, I was like, okay, this is how we're going to show value in a way that this, this is like uh, narratively useful. Right, 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 right. And it also, but it clarifies for people who might not speak the language of tech or speak mm -hmm. the language of whatever business discipline you're involved in. It's like math. It's sort of a universal language, right? And it cuts across all language barriers and creates clarity, certainty, and, you know, direction. But, but again, the art of creating metrics or data science or that back end, like, you know, asking the right questions, as, as trite as it might be to say that, it's really important to understand. It is important to ask the right questions because you, if you ask the wrong questions, you're led in totally different and, and sometimes, you know, not great directions. That's right. And, and I, it's, I mean, I think uh, you won't be surprised to hear, <clears throat> excuse me, that um, one of my tentacles <laughs> is always involved in analytics yeah, for that sure. reason. I think um, you're, you're determining the frame uh, for what you consider success and what you consider uh, successful battles in the overall the overall war, yep. the overall uh, kind of journey for your company. And I think the thing that I'm um, allergic to or, or have a distaste for is kind of um, this blinkered or um, by the numbers thinking of like, well, these are the metrics, right? This is what mm -hmm. we think about. Right. And what I, what I find, and I think like one of the benefits of age, I'll say, is like I've, I've seen enough, uh, enough different environments and seen how radically different, brilliant people can approach even similar sorts of problems. Yeah, right. That I think we all need to just kind of loosen our limbs yep. and think about like what what is the real problem here? What are we really trying to solve? And too much of uh, sometimes analytics work can be rote. It can be mm -hmm. like 
well, we measure this. This is, mm-hmm. we always, I measured that in my last three companies and we will measure this. I'm like, yeah, but guy, like this, <laughs> this, is right. not, oh. this is not what matters this time. Right, right. Well, I, I go back to your, I mean, I go back to all the way to the beginning. And if it didn't portend your philosophical approach to life, which is we are, con- we live in a constant state of change. That's about mm-hmm. the only thing that is certain, right? Is things change. Mm-hmm. And that gray area, most people are not very comfortable in right? They want certainty. They want clarity. Almost in, the, in sacrificing, I'll call it, because it's an subjective term, truth or facts, right? Certainty is a warm blanket that people are willing to wrap themselves up in, yeah. in lieu of the world burning around them, right? Um, and, 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 and like, well, I'm being a bit extreme, but because yeah. similar to you, like the, whenever I hear someone say, this is how we've always done it, like literally the hairs in the back of my neck stand up and I'm like, okay, there's opportunity here. Like, you know what I mean? Like, let's look at that. Why, why do you say that? Can we improve that? Um, Cause that's the same thing that people, you know, said uh, scribe said when they saw the printing press show up, they're like, Oh my God, with a printing press, how are you supposed to do that? Like we've always written in books and blah, 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 blah. So it's, I mean, it is the antithesis of innovation is this sort of status quo things don't change, keep myself wrapped up in certainty, right? Um, Because the future is uncertain. It's just by definition, it is. Well, I guess it's sort of a corollary of necessity is the mother of invention. If you want to be, uh, if you want to create new things, then put yourself in a space where there are problems that require creativity. Sure. Like for those of us who choose to work in startups, I mean, I could, I could, I could go work in a cushier, safer job that's more certain. And maybe mm-hmm. I should. Right? But, but, but depends this on your life. Depends where you're at. Depends on what's going on in your life, you know? It's just my particular dysfunction yeah. is that yeah. I enjoy I enjoy the messy spaces. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's 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 bring it into then kind of invisible tech because again, a lot of consumer-oriented, you know, things. And you kind of you kind of whimsically touched it. So I saw the handoff of the baton that you were doing and creating that bind to what you're doing now. Yeah. But process is a bit lot different than uh, what you were doing back at, at, at Bellhops, right? I mean, there's still platforms and I'm going to come back to platforms in a second, but what is Invisible Tech? How'd you get involved in, in, in specifically like, you know, yeah, sure. just going to that, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think um, just to, I, I was setting up the story, which is that I spent a decade in enterprise SaaS. Hey, uh, actually, can we pause for a second yeah. so I can get my dog to yeah, stop? Yeah, yeah, sure, of course, of course, of course. And as far as, you know, the continuation, but now talking about invisible tech, kind of where you're at, how did, you know, and process, I mean, talk a little bit, describe what you're doing now, because it is, it seems to be different, but I, I, I see the platform kind of progression here. Yeah, I mean, I spent 10 years working on, uh, working for an enterprise SaaS company, building a platform that enabled automations, largely focused on mobile marketing use cases, but we built process flows and flow charts for, uh, for multi-channel marketing campaigns. So, oh, we get an SMS message and then we send an email and we do this other thing. Um, and that was a platform that was used by, and still is, I think, in some form by a lot of major companies in the U.S., the you know, Comcast, American Express, JCPenney. And um, <clears throat> my experience in that space was that we were building a really exciting and powerful tool that enabled us to be our clients to be process driven, largely in service of enterprise marketing initiatives. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I thought it was great. Like I lo- love the technology. I love I love the that space. But at the same time, um, I kind of yearned for some kind of broader relevance of the work that I was doing. Some, something my mother could understand. Yeah, right. Uh, Mom, this is what I do. Uh, right. Okay, I don't really know what you're talking. <laughs> about. Um, <laughs> But um, so then I worked for this marketplace company, um, uh-huh. CTO for Bellhops, and uh-huh. uh, was trying to bring uh, a revolution to the experience of con- of the consumer residential move. Uh-huh. Um, relax, it's move day, right? Uh-huh. Like every, everything doesn't have to be stressful. We'll take care of all the details and the tech uh-huh. enables it from behind the scenes. Right. Well, what's interesting about Invisible to me and the reason why it just felt like the right thing, um, uh-huh. I've been with Invisible for three and a half years, is that it's a combination of um, of an automation platform that we've built out, mm-hmm. to, and also uh, a marketplace for workforce management. So th- that's that's the behind the scenes view. So I, should, I should at least explain what the product is and what we. Right. Um, 
So uh, when you look around, here's my my kind of view on the nature of of modern work. You drive Mm -hmm. down Main Street or Wall Street or Sixth Avenue. Um, and you, you're going to drive past all these buildings and you see all these, all these buildings have little offices in them. And each of the offices, there's, there's five different departments mm-hmm. and each, each one of the, the sales teams is trying to get data into Salesforce mm-hmm. and the marketing team is working with HubSpot right. and the, uh, the finance team is working with QuickBooks or maybe they're a NetSuite. They're all using the same tools and we're all facing some of the same problems. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the space of kind of general purpose knowledge work, things that go on in offices, is mm-hmm. shockingly similar. Right. Uh, with little little variations, but shockingly similar from box to box. And you're driving mm-hmm. down the street full of all these little boxes, full of human beings performing tasks. And, it, and in some ways, I think one of the, the most painful aspects of like the progress of technology is the place where we make humans act more like machines. Right. So um, when you think about the experience of, say, um, I just spent some time with some folks in insurance companies last week, and and uh, some of our clients, and you you'll hear a story about someone who works in an office in Florida and is very familiar with the Florida insurance regulations related to the specific problem space, mm-hmm. and everything has to go through her, mm-hmm. and her job is basically like to execute a series of conditional logic. Like mm-hmm. you could easily imagine a lot of the decision-making that she has to do is based on like understanding of a context and some state data, and then what actions you perform in each of those situations. And um, you can hear when you talk to people and sometimes in, the, in these sorts of roles, sometimes they're, they, they find it enjoyable in the same way that I might find it enjoyable to do daily crosswords. Right. But you also feel like this dehumanizing thing of like, there's an infinite amount of work Technology doesn't solve the problems. It just creates more platforms I need to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no way to scale this beyond uh, the heroic efforts of a small number of individuals. Mm-hmm. So where Invisible comes in is that our um, our good fit client is uh, a rapidly growing company that needs help. Like how do we how do we scale up our business? Like if you're not growing rapidly, you probably can handle it you know, with internal hiring. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're probably a company that's thought, um, hey, uh, should we outsource some piece of this work? Should we hire, you know, uh, uh, 500 people in the Philippines to man a call center? Or should we have claims processing running out of uh, some other offshore type of group? Like, how would we approach that? Or maybe I would just broadly characterize those as outsourcing and BPO type of solutions. Then there are RPA sort of solutions and automation solutions. Let's hire some engineers. Maybe let's build some solutions with tools like UiPath. Um, They're going to be expensive. They're going to take a while to get going. They're going to be great. If everything Mm -hmm. goes well, it's going to be like amazingly efficient. Right. But you also have to take on the risk of, of, you know, embarking on a complex tech project. So Invisible's value prop is to come into these kind of situations where there's a, a very horizontal. A yeah. lot of different types of problems fit this description. But rapidly scaling, rapidly growing company, scaling problem space, need some help, want to take away some of the complexity, that's what we're here for. So instead mm-hmm. of coming to that fork in the road and having to decide, like, am I going to invest in managing outsource resources? Am I going to invest in complex tech implementations? We just say, look, we're going to deliver the results for you. Mm-hmm. We will. We can scale up a team really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, we can have solutions for you in the first week. We can be delivering things in the first week. And we're going to be able to do that through a combination of we manage a workforce for you to your needs. Mm-hmm. And we also layer in automation where appropriate. Mm-hmm. And when we find opportunities. We, we bring that on board. Mm-hmm. And a, a couple of little nuances to that that make us a little bit different from or, or more than uh, simply like a smart outsourcing model. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's interesting, we were talking about analytics. Um, our KPIs mm-hmm. are our clients' KPIs. Okay. We, uh, we are paid based on results, not based on hours. So there's inherently often a problem with taking an outsourcing approach of like, um, it's kind of a contractor problem. Mm-hmm. Like if you've ever had somebody to build your deck, um, 
there's really no incentive for them to do it any faster. Right. In fact, if, if anything, there's an incentive for them to maybe drag their feet um, unless you're paying a fixed price. If you, if you say like, okay, it's $10,000 to replace my deck, mm-hmm. you'll be in a hurry to finish it and we'll, we'll be talking about quality. We'll be having the right conversation. But right. if I'm paying you based on you know, $500 an hour or, or $500 a day, just come on out, then you're just going to hang out. Yeah, of course. So by having aligned incentives for what good looks like, Mm-hmm. quality KPIs and having um, a results-based pricing model, what we what we end up with is we're we're all aligned against the problem, same problems. Right. Right. So um, if, if we if we see that there are opportunities for automation, it's not going to be performative. Like right. we're going to deliver automations because it lowers our costs. Yep. It makes it possible for us to lower our pricing. Um, it's in everybody's best interest. And the reality of that world where everybody's living in their little boxes in their different buildings is that we've built up and we continue to build up uh, expertise in a variety of areas that allow us to create efficiencies that other mm-hmm. people don't have. They don't mm-hmm. see into all those other little rooms. Um, so our CEO, Francis uh, Pedraza, like he refers to this in, in a really ambitious visionary kind of way as mapping mm-hmm. the corporate genome. I, mm-hmm. We're not there. We haven't mm-hmm. fully mapped the corporate process genome and understand what um, what every little team does in every department. But what we've done is we've built a process management and process execution platform to enable that. So um, what does that mean? Uh, in a lot of cases, when people talk about being process-oriented, what they mean mm-hmm. is they've documented a set of processes. Maybe they've got some SOPs. Mm-hmm. Maybe they've got some flowcharts and some maps, some guidance for like, a visual understanding of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, what we're doing is bringing um, uh, all of those things into our platform. So when you when we execute a, pro- a process for one of our clients, um, you can see it. You can see mm-hmm. the canvas. We've built it out. Um, there's no question of compliance. Like, do, do the manual steps get executed as expected? Well, actually, as it turns out, every person who is executing a manual step in a process gets guided through a custom-built UI that we mm-hmm. build from within our platform. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, <laughs> I feel like I'm, I'm going on a bit. Uh, no, 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 no. I, 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 no, it's perfect because you got me thinking a couple things. One is immediately I think the 800-pound gorilla in the space is service now, right? Mm-hmm. So you're kind of drafting on them a little bit, right? But service now, oh, God, I'll, I'll be controversial here, and I actually know a bunch of – I was – whatever. But is that – even ServiceNow, it's a little bit going down the SAP road for me, right? Like, like the, I'll be controversial. This is Richard Donaldson's opinion. I, you know, SAP to me is, again, can't take away from how big and, you know, installed they are, but they are, they are the walk, as far as I, I treat them as the walking dead, right? Mm-hmm. Meaning they will extinguish over time here because that install base will replace them. And it's like, I, it's every other technology company that, that sort of lives on that install base. And I feel like ServiceNow is, even though they don't realize it, they're kind of their toes dipped into that La Brea tar pit, you know, already. And even look at that. I don't know the guy at all, but the guy who came from SAP to run it, uh, you know, when uh, after um, uh, John uh, Donahoe, my ex-CEO from eBay was there. Um, where I'm going, though, is, so one, you, you sound a lot like ServiceNow. But then secondarily, from a technology perspective, and this is what I actually want to ask is, you also are building something that has to, you know, it's focused on bigger businesses, right? Not just SMBs, but now you're in the enterprise space, right? And your processes, I don't care how great they are, but they still need to interoperate with a bunch of other technologies, right? Now, this is opening this can because I feel like this is the trend that we're going to see for the next five to eight years, whether CTOs and CIOs understand this or not, it's a separate question. One, they're going to build all their technology things onto platforms. That's just a given, right? SaaS is, I mean, you know, uh, uh, Salesforce said it, Benny Hoff said it back in the day, software's dead, right? That, that is 23 years later, we're, we're just now starting to realize that. Secondly, if you are now running an enterprise you, and you're running everything on SaaS cloud-based platforms, the other key element is those platforms have to interoperate with each other. And you have to start thinking about a data model that allows you to do that. And then you have to start thinking architecturally, 
what are my key elements? What are my golden masters? What are the key data pieces I need to kind of focus on, kind of build from there? So the question is, how do you, to me, that's still, I mean, you and I might go, well, shit, that's what we've been thinking about for 15 years. But when you go out to the world today, this is still what we're, what I just described to you is a radically newish, innovative concept, platform of platforms, right? The enterprise is all on these things. You got to interoperate, think about data exchange to get the full value for the enterprise, right? Because if you're just one isolated piece of enterprise software, well, yeah, you're going to get, you're, you're stuck. That's, that's not going to maintain itself. So how do you view that today, both in the context of what you're doing is, is the guiding principle around what Invisible is doing, but also speak to it in a larger sense, speak to the CIOs and CTOs out there at enterprises. It's like, hey, you got to start thinking about not only what am I selecting for what its purpose is, but how does it interwork with everything else I need to sew up to make the enterprise ERP 2.0 come to life? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I see it very similarly. Um, yeah. I think like uh, one of the, the metaphors that I use is it's kind of like uh, if you took a like an Arctic core sample, like if you take a core of, you're going to find all these different layers going on. And when, when you think about any meaningful process that a, that a company might be performing, mm-hmm. um, there's a complex web of uh, third-party software tools, humans with individual expertise, mm-hmm. tribal knowledge, institutional knowledge that has been documented and managed. It's just, mm-hmm. it's just chaos. It's just super messy. Right. Inevitably. And it's not messy because people are stupid or awful. It's messy because the world is messy and problems are complex. So a couple of principles that have guided the development of what we've built and what we continue to build that kind of reflect on that. One, um, again, kind of an anecdote. Having built uh, a process management platform in the past in the space of mobile marketing, I was really proud of this thing. And I remember we would go on these quarterly business reviews and meet with clients. And I think it was IBM. It was one of our one of our bigger customers. I'm, I'm meeting with them, and I asked them about this thing that we called the multi-step editor, which mm-hmm. was a complex uh, process management flow where you could drag in pieces and create complex workflows. And I asked them how they felt about it. They said, "Oh man, it's fantastic! It's like the best thing ever! It's awesome! Mm-hmm. Like cool! That's fantastic! I'm really glad to hear that. How often do you use it? Oh, never! It's way too complicated." <laughs> I've got a job to do. Right. I can't be an expert in your crazy software. Right. And I think one of the principles that guides what we do is an understanding that we don't charge for consultation. We don't, we don't have consultant. We're the anti-consultants. Got it. We come in and say, okay, you know what? Let's sit down together and we'll help to map out this process together. Maybe Mm -hmm. you already have some documentation. Maybe you've built some things. Mm -hmm. We're going to build this for you. Mm -hmm. So we don't expect that we're not going to put a high barrier of entry so we don't we don't believe fundamentally in this idea, like as you're referencing, that like you throw a software tool out in the world and people will come and and, right. and explore it and learn it. It's just that that day has passed. Right. It, it passed when when people stopped buying largely empty boxes with shiny disks in them at CompuSA. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're past that. So fundamental principle for us is that we we come to where you are. We don't expect you to come to us and add a, yet another software product to your stack. Right. Um, so that, that's one of the principles. Interoperability is another key principle. So, um, so when we think about like what makes our platform valuable, it it largely is driven by having a strong strategic library of integrations and automations. Yeah. So if you, I could show you a logo slide. Here's the fifty or seventy five different uh, third party software products that we integrate with. Right, but, but, but let me let me touch on that real quick because I don't want to gloss over it because this is where I also think people get a little bit lost in the term integration, right? Hmm. Let me ask you specifically, you're talking about integrations with other cloud-type solutions, right? Not just legacy software, right? Because it's one thing to try and be integrated into SAP, but what you're going to find is almost SAP installations are still enterprise non-cloud based therefore every time you in there's not one ring to rule them all right if those are all individual integrations which is also i'm in the weeds here a little bit but this is where i think people get a little bit confused it's like oh you integrate with sap it's like okay well, let's be clear about this i i can integrate with the cloud version the hana the the sap that's hosted and kind of one size fits all but i can't do it for all these discrete enterprise you know, uh, Frankensteins that live out there that we all know live out there because those are all become custom integrations, right? And this is another thing that's 
right here and now, right, is I think you can integrate with other cloud solutions, but enterprises are still not completely all on cloud-based solutions. So that creates some challenges. It's true. It's true. But I think um, I try to <laughs> intentionally try to blur the lines because we're willing to take on, um, like it, it's very common for us to work with a company who has cloud hosted versions of X, Y, and Z, but then to get to the real meat of the platform, we need to get into their custom internal system. It's mm -hmm. not unusual at all for us to have. Uh, so a lot of our clients are, um, we have a really strong market share among the on-demand delivery companies, mm -hmm. um, pretty much 100%. And when you think about um, uh, their internal systems, our ability, we're not going to be pushing our platform right. on a, a client like that. What we do is we create um, connection points, uh, connective tissue, so mm -hmm. that when our workforce is working on a client's proprietary system, it's hosted in our platform, on our tools, we're gotcha. tracking the activities that are taking place there. Gotcha. Um, and it's in the context of a larger process that's managed on platform. Right. But yeah, I think like there, there are some complexities, but at the same time, it's quite often the case that the, uh, the beginning of the line or the end of the line for, um, for a, a, a process, process that we've modeled um, in executing it, like the end of the line may be, here's some data we're pushing into your Salesforce or, mm -hmm. The start of the process is we are we have a trigger step that's uh, that's fired because we see that there's been some change to some call to some proprietary API, or maybe it's as simple as we call Jira and we see uh, a list of tasks that they've pushed into their Jira system for us to. Mm -hmm. it's, it's just it's extremely diverse, but it turns out that if you cover, um, you know, fifty-ish, fifty to hundred platforms, and you've got a uh, you know five, six years of experience doing that, turns out you can do quite a lot of things with those Lego blocks. You can, mm -hmm. build, you can build the Death Star and you can build right. the Eiffel Tower. Right, 100%. Scott, I wanna, I, again, I, I look at these things and I say this in almost every episode that I do, an hour goes by before you even know it. Um, and and I, I, even though this is our first <laughs> real conversation, you know, it could spend a lot of time with you here because I, I, I'm even, I, I, you just had me thinking about, you know, I just was in a dialogue with Peter Evans the other day, uh, you know, who does all the platform uh, books, uh, Platform Revolution, um, and then they lead a bunch of, he and Jeff Parker lead a bunch of stuff in the platform space. And I think there's an entire number of episodes, a panel where we could talk about what does it mean to be a platform of platforms? What is the enterprise platform strategy going into the next six, seven, eight years? And even though, you, you know, for us, it, it's almost like breathing, it's still somewhat new right now, right? Um, and, and sometimes even as technologists, you got to remind yourself that you've been thinking about these things for probably 10 years before anyone else has even realized there's a problem. Um, and so you got you to kind of slow yourself down a little bit. But regardless, just, just you know, a couple things here to kind of wind down a little bit, Scott. So what's going on? Where are people going to find you? What's, what's new, you know, with, with coming up just with Invisible or yourself or kind of we're coming out of this whole you know, business back to usual kind of stuff, but what's, what's going on for you guys? How do they find you? And just some parting thoughts. Wow. Like it's hard. It's hard not to open up new doors. Yeah. Right. I, I that's why I was slowing myself down. I was like, Oh God, like but I got to constrain myself. What I will yeah. say yeah. is that we are, um, I'll, I'll just briefly say, um, we've, we've done a few, I'm going to leave a few teasers. One, uh, we did the, the thing that you're maybe not supposed to do which yeah. is rebuild your entire platform. After a few years of experience and looking at uh, kind of the problem space, we have mm -hmm. this year rebuilt our entire platform and moved most of our customer base. Uh, by the end of the year, everyone will be over mm -hmm. onto the new platform. Mm -hmm. uh, hugely risky move from my perspective, to be candid, yeah. like as, a, as right. a technology leader, you never feel more exposed than when you're like, I can't look at today's problems fully because I'm building the next generation platform. So this goes into maintenance mode. Yep. And I'm just really excited that we've launched the new platform and awesome. that we have, we have all our, our clients moving over. If they're not over, they're in a migration path right now. Um, and it just opens up the possibilities at a massive level. It's like moving into a brand new house. Yeah. And uh, and that's that's what's really exciting for us right now is that we've got... Uh, we've, we've taken, we've gotten out of the woods. We've gotten mm -hmm. past the, the huge risky part of the yep. transition. Yep. And that's just, that's just a fantastic feeling. Um, that's so we're, awesome. 
when we go into uh, into next year, we go into 2023, um, we're starting fresh. And I think like um, in any startup, every week you're a new company. Yeah. We're a company that's growing really rapidly. We are profitable. We are self-owned. And we are, uh, we are, you know, living in a brand new, beautiful house. Uh, and, and, and masters of your own destiny with all masters of our own destiny, with our own, right. we're at, at the, <coughs> that's the awesome. of our own ship. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, Scott, listen, really just a wonderful treat today. Uh, really we'll follow up with you some more. Um, but, but thank you so much for spending some time with us today. It was a really great conversation. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. Hopefully we talk again soon. Thanks for listening. If you have any comments about this episode or topics on supply chain you'd like us to cover, you can reach us at supplychainnext at requis.com. And while you're at it, check out the Requis platform at supplychain.requis.com. Requis allows you to manage the full asset lifecycle in the cloud while collaborating with your entire value network to buy, manage, and sell your assets. Find out more at requis.com.